We want to welcome you to the Bible teaching ministry of Fellowship Bible Church, where our desire is to honor God by faithful obedience to His Word. If you want to understand the Bible better, please continue to listen as Pastor Matt Postiff explains and applies the biblical text one verse at a time. You can reach us with questions or for more teaching audio and print material at our website, fbcaa.org. You can also watch our services live at fbcaa.org slash live. We want to thank you for listening and pray that you will be edified. Join us now as Pastor Postiff opens God's Word. Welcome again, everyone. Let's turn our Bibles to Matthew's Gospel in chapter 17, please. Matthew now in chapter 17. We began our study there in the 17th chapter with the Transfiguration. And we're going to come to the next portion of that. I think we've addressed that enough, (laughs) so we move on. Starting in verse number 14, and I've uh, titled the message, An Epileptic Demon and the Faith of a Mustard Seed. I don't mean that mustard seeds have faith, okay? I mean the faith of the size of a mustard seed. You understand what I'm saying. But Matthew 17, 14, I'll read. It says, And when they had come... Uh, to the multitude, that is, they're coming down from the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter, James, John, and Jesus. Remember, they have, uh, Moses and Elijah have disappeared. So when they had come down uh, to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, just get that picture in your mind. Here's a man who, the verb that's used is that he got on his knees before the Lord. It's not just like he, you know, took a little bow or something like that. He actually got on his knees before the Lord, and he was beseeching him to come and and to provide some help. He said in verse 15, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. So I brought him to your disciples, that would be the other nine disciples, okay, Uh, but they could not cure him. Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked, notice it doesn't say the epilepsy, it says the demon. And it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, why could we not cast it out? I want you to get this because here's where the the real lesson comes. So Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, for assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move, and nothing will be impossible for you. However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Verse 21 says, if you have a, a, a newer English translation, you'll notice that there's a little difference there. In this message, we're going to learn about a boy's severe health issue that was actually caused by a demon and the faith that is required to live the life of a follower of Christ. And so I titled the first section of the message from verses 14 to 16, uh, A Boy with a Severe Health Issue. Uh, and, you know, we know what we know from reading on in the future verses, the, the verses past verse 14 and, and 15 and 16, but um, they didn't, or the father didn't know this at the time necessarily. 
he came to Jesus, kneeling on his knees to him and requesting help for his son. And I just want you, as I ask you to picture that situation of him falling down on his knees before Jesus, to think about the desperation of that parent. Think about your own feeling that if your son or daughter began to have seizures, uh, was unable to be controlled, uh, random times these odd things would happen to them. And as the man said um, in, uh, well, let's see, where is it? Yes, in uh, verse 15, he suffers severely often falling into the fire and often into the water. Hopelessness. He's had this condition for some time. Imagine the grief and the pain that this father has experienced. And that's not even to say his mom. That's the dad. They left the mom at home maybe with other siblings, and and dad went out on a mission to find somebody to help their, their son. The son is described with uh, different words in the different translations. The King James, it says what? Does anybody have a King James here? You left tears at home. How could you, just when I need it? It says he's a lunatic. Lunatic, T-I-C-K is how it's spelled, which is not correct in modern English. Uh, we don't use that uh, term. Not, neither is the New American Standard. It also says he's lunatic and very ill, although that's spelled, uh, the common spelling there is given for lunatic. The ESV, the Net Bible, the NIV, it says he has seizures and he suffers terribly or greatly. And the New King James, as I just read, he is an epileptic and he suffers um, severely. So, uh, you know, lunatic really doesn't work because we don't use it in this connotation today. I mean, what does it mean? Basically, from my understanding, it's basically the same as saying somebody's crazy, right? And it has no... Um, denotation of a problem that extends to motor skills or something like that, you know, falling into uh, dangerous situations. Although, of course, people who are crazy can get themselves into dangerous situations. And and that's obviously not a technical definition of what's happening with anybody who has a mental illness. But the Greek word is an interesting word. It's something like this, this youngster is moonstruck. He's, he's enchanted by the moon, and uh, it indicates that the seizures or, or what we would uh, say are epileptic-like seizures. We don't know that it was epilepsy per se. Uh, the diagnosis was not that, how can I say, precise. You know, if you know anything about diagnoses of, uh, in fact, I don't need to have this, do I? I can remove it. If you know anything about diagnoses, uh, even today they're coming up with more specific things and ways of describing diseases and sets of symptoms and genetics and all of that. Um, So we don't have to get too worried about that. But this kind of behavior to them was understood to have a supernatural origin. It was not right. It was not normal. Uh, And indeed, in this case, verses 18 and 19 tell us that it was uh, demonic in origin. The demon came out and the the disciples ask, why couldn't we cast it out? So um, the ultimate, excuse me, the ultimate origin of this was demonic. Now, a couple thousand years ago, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do right now just to kind of give you a roadmap is I'm going to make an extended comment on the nature of the um, affliction that the boy had 
and how it connects to our view of afflictions of this sort in general. And then we're going to come back to the text, okay? So bear with me on a little, a little uh, side trail here, sidebar. Uh, 2,000 years ago, the people tended to understand this as a supernatural or spiritual kind of issue. We could easily fault them for this because we know that not every problem has a supernatural origin, or at least we tend to think that way. That line of thought becomes a real problem, though, when we slightly change the wording and say, no problem has a supernatural origin. We know that not every problem has a supernatural origin, but if we say none has a spiritual or supernatural origin, then we really get ourselves into a, a, a quagmire that we can't get out of. Today, as much as we criticize the ancients, today we have the exact opposite tendency as we suppose those ancient people had. We would ascribe his condition to a medical, physical problem and discount the spiritual nature of it entirely. We think, I'm speaking generally of the society in the West and even in Christian circles, we think of our own superiority and medical knowledge and how this problem might be fixable today with, uh, or theoretically fixable if we just knew what hormone was the right one or what gene had gone wrong or what chemical could be added or what gland was not working right and needed to be surgery, needed to be operated on it or, or whatever was out of balance. You know, we could buy a pill or we could design one that could fix this problem. But our superior knowledge, and I put that in quotes, our superior knowledge that assigns such things to the physical realm is really no better than the ancient knowledge that assigns such things purely to a supernatural or spiritual realm. Neither is entirely correct. But the lack of scientific knowledge in the ancient world is no worse than the lack of humility in our own day. Are you with me? You know, we are very puffed up in our knowledge. and We look down on these people. Our lack of humility is as bad or worse than their lack of scientific knowledge. By the way, what's worse, actually? Would you rather lack scientific knowledge or would you rather lack humility before God? <laughs> Better to have humility. But... The over-reliance on spiritual explanations back then is no worse than our over-reliance on science and physical factors today. Now, I would make the argument that we would be far better off today if we would back off of our scientific hubris and at least recognize the possibility that some of today's health problems are spiritual problems or symptoms of spiritual problems. The whole gender thing comes to mind immediately with that regard. But I mean, addiction issues, uh, other health issues. There may still be demon possession going on today. I tend to think of that in the more severe cases, or maybe not so much in the West, but in the East or Middle East, uh, regions of the world where Christianity has been so uh, absent, or in other lands filled up with witchcraft, animism, voodoo, on all of those things, demonic things. But I'm not saying anything with great certainty here. I'm just speaking around this, the subject. From personal observation, I know that there are sin problems that are not inevitably the result of physical afflictions, but actually the reverse is true. Sin problems that contribute to physical afflictions. 
That's unarguable in my mind based on the data. For example, addictive sin tendencies can lead to physically destructive results. But it's not as simple as saying one kind of problem leads to another kind of problem in, one, in a linear one-direction-only kind of thing. What do I mean by that? Well, addictions, once activated, can lead to further sin to aid in chasing the addiction. You have that tendency, you fall into that temptation, you begin to do that activity, then you begin to steal so you can feed your habit. Well, that's feeding more sin, which is feeding more addiction, which is feeding more sin. And so there's an interplay, a feedback mechanism because of the complexity of our human condition. We simply do not know all the particulars in every case. We do not have the diagnostic tools, either biblical or scientific, to ascertain demon possession, for instance. In some cases, we may be focusing on a physical solution, but if we just focus on a physical solution, we may be spitting into the wind. Have you ever done that before? (laughs) You know what happens? You can imagine what happens. Or as some might say, you know, you fix this physical problem and the manifestation of sin pops up over here. So you deal with this one and it pops up over here because you're not addressing the actual issue. You're only masking it or dealing with some related physical or chemical kind of problem. But the Bible does give us many tools to diagnose spiritual problems. And When you are, uh, like when you're fixing on a car, if there are several problems, you often want to fix what you can with the tools that you have to get it better, even if you cannot get it perfect. But if there are a number of issues going on, at least, you know, tune up this area and fix up this area spiritually and make sure that those things are running as well as they can. So all of this I'm saying is to to take this, uh, to take a, a caution here. Do not treat the ancients with a condescending attitude like all the poor, ignorant creatures. You know, don't have that mentality because they had spiritual concerns in their medical diagnoses. You may be in the end upbraided by them as too arrogant in your supposed scientific knowledge because you ignored spiritual concerns. So don't criticize what you don't know when you don't even know what you don't know. In any case, pause and, uh, and remember that uh, these things, there's no, there's no way that we can say that, uh, you know, a certain problem came about, well, like John chapter 9, right? Why was this man born blind? His parents sinned or, or did he sin? No, there was some other explanation. Sin generally, of course, was the result uh, or was the cause of, of any kind of affliction, but not his sin or his parents' sin, or just the cursed nature of the world in which we live. And uh, that, that was put in place so that God would be glorified in the life of that man and before uh, others as well. And so there the disciples were too focused on the spiritual uh, aspect, and they were wrong about their diagnosis. So we've got to be careful about that and recognize the interplay between both spiritual and physical, and, uh, and, and that should make sense to us. Remember this, if you go back to the constitution of man, it'll save you a lot of headache. God made man out of the dust of the ground. He has a physical body, and he breathed into him the breath of life, so he has a spirit and he has a body, and those two together make a living nephesh, a living soul. So, and, and they're so connected that one thing affects the other thing. A physical problem affects the spirit, and a spiritual problem affects the physical, okay? 
Just keep that in mind. That principle will help you. Um, the father brought the son to a good group of people to help him. At least he thought so. Back to the text now. He, I, I brought him to the disciples. In fact, the best nine people that were there available, those that didn't go to the Mount of Transfiguration, but they could not help him. The man's hopes were dashed. Jesus came down from the mountain just in time. Now, the, the text doesn't tell us here if the father thought, you know, well, I don't want to go to this Jesus guy or his disciples, but I'll do anything. It's a last-ditch effort. Or if he was a man of faith. I'm saying the text here doesn't tell us. Okay? We learn from elsewhere that the father had his own challenges with faith. Mark chapter 9, 23 and 24, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. This is the same circumstance. So he does have faith, he does believe, but he, he has his doubts, maybe we could say, also. But that all is not Matthew's concern here. The apostle Matthew has written for another purpose. The lesson is manifestly not about the Father, but it's about the disciples' inability and their need for faith. Now, by the way, um, did you notice who asked for help for the boy? His dad. Did the boy ask for help? I learned something in my studies reading on this that I thought was interesting. The boy does not ask for help here. In fact, I'm certain, I, I think I'm certain, but I'll say fairly certain, that in all or the vast majority of demon possession cases we see in the New Testament, you never see the demon-possessed person asking for help. Why? Because if the demon is controlling them, the demon doesn't want help. He wants to be left alone, undisturbed. He likes where he lives. In fact, when the Lord told the legion to leave the man and go into the, you know, ultimately to go into the swine, they didn't want to leave. They didn't, you know, don't cast us into the abyss or whatever. They, they had a preference as to where they would go. The demon doesn't want help. He wants to remain inside the person and not be disturbed. You too may observe someone who does not want spiritual help and is not asking for spiritual help. But you might be just the person to give it to them because they need spiritual help. You see what I'm saying? Lost people don't know that they're lost necessarily. Some do. Some have a, you know, they've, God's working in their hearts perhaps and they have an idea that they're lost, but there are a lot of people who don't have any clue, but they need help. And you can't, it's like, you know, going by the fellow who, you know, who's left for dead on the side of the road and the, the, the priest and the Levite go by and they don't care. Well, the, the Samaritan realized, well, this guy needs help. He's knocked out cold probably. He doesn't know he needs help. <laughs> he, he, he needs help though. And so he takes him and puts, you know, takes care of him and all of that. So we have to realize that not in, a, not in an arrogant way, not in, you know, uh, not in a, a pride, prideful way, but people need help and we have something to offer them. You know? And if they don't want the help, okay, that's, that's fine. If they refuse that, that's their business, but uh, we have something to help with. The Lord rebukes the disciples and uh, then heals the son. He, uh, verses 17, he says, uh, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Bring him here to me. Now, I don't believe he's criticizing the father here. 
Why do I say that? Because he, he uses twice the, the pronoun you, and it's not evident in your translation, but it's you plural. Okay, How long shall I be with y'all, and how long shall I bear with you all? Okay, Plural comes through very clearly in the original language, but not so well in English because we don't have the, the you and the yous, you know, with the plural at the end. That it's all one word. So um, the words here have a broad application to the generation, the perverse and wicked generation, but especially to the most promising people of that generation. Who are they? The nine disciples. Of anybody, you could expect them as representatives of the generation to kind of get it right. Notice uh, that the verse, uh, verse 20 it is actually, uh, points directly to the disciples. Jesus said to them, because of your unbelief, that's why you couldn't cast out this demon. The father did not have the time with Jesus. He did not have the instruction with Jesus. He he wasn't taught by the Lord. These disciples were way more accountable. Yes, sir. No, I, uh, John's asking the question, did Judas ever have the faith required to do any of these things? And the answer is no, but did he do some of them? We've talked about this a little bit before. It may be that he was able to do some of these uh, miraculous things simply by God's design. I'm thinking of a prophet that my wife and I were just talking about, Balaam, who made some true prophecies, but he was not a prophet of God. He was a prophet for hire. So you couldn't say that he had true faith either, but he did some things that were, I mean, and so seemingly right that many believers read that and they're like, what is, what, what is this guy? He seems like he's a real prophet of God, but, but he's, he's actually not. So um, I am not aware of a portion of scripture that tells us specifically that Judas did some act like this and I've I've posited that uh, when they went out two by two, Judas tagged along with somebody, and the, the other guy did all the talking, you know, because Judas was just a mess uh, inside. But uh, even so, there are believers today who seem—I should say—there are seeming believers today who, you know, seem to have a, a measure of God's grace, but then they may be found out later not to, and so they seem to be walking with the Lord, but then. You find out later they're really not, so it's a little hard to tell in some of those cases. So um, the disciples were way more accountable than the father was, not only Judas, but all of them. The poor father doesn't know much. You know, he's not been with Jesus, but these guys have. I mean, they've seen him still the storm, you know, raise the dead, heal the sick, cast out demons, help lepers, feed 5,000, all the teaching that he's done, and they still are slow on the uptake. I, I mentioned this too. Um, I don't take what the Lord says here as a, as a complaint. In a sense, it is kind of a complaint, but it's not a bad complaint, if you will. Um, it takes a lot of patience for the Lord to dwell with people who do not have faith. You know what I mean? When he saw somebody that had faith, like that Roman soldier who said to him, you know, just say the word and my son or my servant, rather, will be healed. And uh, the, um, you know, the Lord said, I, 
I haven't found faith like this anywhere. This is remarkable, you know, remarkable. But it's, a, it's an unpleasant experience for God to have to put up with people who have no faith in him. You know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a, it takes a lot of patience. Now, the Lord rebuked the demon, and uh, the demon was excommunicated from uh, having anything to do with the boy. Whenever the, the Lord removed a demon, there was a, uh, can I say this, a fully enforced protection order, personal protection order, PPO, against that demon again. And, and I think any of the demonic colleagues as well, when, when the Lord cast out a demon from somebody, that kind of put a, I, I believe, put a little mark on that person saying, you know, no vacancy or something like that. And many of them came to faith in the Lord also, and so that would justify that statement. There is a, an example of uh, Matthew twelve forty three, um, where, remember the, the story the Lord gave a little parable about the demon who goes out of a man and he's in dry places, and then he says, oh, I'm going to go back and find, you know, he finds the house swept in an order, the person's life, and he takes seven demons more wicked than himself. Well, that was not a demon being cast out. That was just a demon voluntarily leaving and then coming back again, and uh, apparently of his own accord. So that's what happened. The Lord cast out the demon. The statement is very, just, just a basic narrative. Uh, he rebuked the demon, it came out, the, the boy was cured for that, from that very hour. We could rewind our brains back to the beginning when I said, you know, the man bowed before the Lord, he was desperate and all of that. Imagine the elation that he had now that this was taken care of. Uh, it's just an amazing, amazing situation. So um, they, they come to a private review of the situation now, and they ask the question they couldn't wait to ask, why couldn't we cast it out? Perhaps they were too embarrassed to ask in public. Actually, they had been humiliated, unfortunately, uh, before the people that were present. It's obviously that, obvious that they did not produce the results that they were supposed to produce. The Lord's answer is simple. Unbelief. They could not accomplish this work for the Lord because they did not trust God. They had been given authority to cast out demons. Remember Matthew 10, 1, go out, heal the sick, cast out demons, raise, you know, preach the gospel, all that. But this verse informs us that that power was not available at will or apart from belief in Christ. And so I ask myself this question as I move quickly to application. The, the interpretation is pretty clear. Uh, what they were doing was they were, they were somehow relying on themselves. They were trusting in their own power or something, and, and they you know, were unable to do what they had been given to be able to do. So I ask myself, why is it that we do not accomplish the things of God? We could say disobedience which is a lot of it, but we could also say that underlying that disobedience is a practical unbelief. We do not obey because we do not trust. We do not trust, and therefore we will not trust and obey. If you don't trust, you will not trust and obey. If you do not truly embrace what Christ has said, taking it as the word of God instead of as the word of men, or sometimes we take it as the word of God optional or the word of God footnoted with exception clauses so we don't have to obey it in the, in the time and place that we feel that it's not appropriate. 
then you will not obey what it says. And if you don't obey it, then you don't truly believe it, despite any protestations to the contrary. Now, this does not mean that you or the disciples are pagan unbelievers. They, they had faith, a very imperfect and incomplete faith, and you do too have an imperfect and incomplete faith if you're a follower of Jesus. Jesus' point here is driven home by a vibrant illustration. Faith as, fall, sorry, faith as small as the proverbial mustard seed would allow a disciple to move a mountain, and nothing would be impossible for you. When you approach a work, when you approach anything in life, when you approach especially working for God, you have got to say, God, this is not going to be a done, it's not going to be accomplished, it's not going to be worth anything unless you're in it, and I have to trust you in this. Evangelism, you're scared out of your mind to evangelize somebody. Trust God. You don't know what to say. Trust God. You're facing a trial, you don't know what to do. You have to trust the Lord. Uh, you're facing... Um, you know, uh, sickness, uh, some situation, temptation. Here's one, temptation. I've had people say, I can't can't handle it. I know a situation of a young man who realized because he can't handle his temptations, he could not. He could not, could not, could not. You know what he realized? He wasn't born again. Because if you have the Spirit of God in you, you can, by faith, overcome those temptations. Now, uh, just an objection that people raise here about um, the mustard seed faith in verse 20. You know, why aren't Christians moving mountains all the time? Well, we're, we're safe because many Christians don't have enough faith to do that. <laughs> right? Just like the disciples. You know, so there's a whole bunch of Christians it's not even an issue for. But... There are those who have the right kind of faith and good insight into what God's will is, and they know that God's will is not for that mountain to be moved. So they don't ask for it. They don't ask for that mountain to be moved. But what about the mountain of somebody who doesn't believe in the gospel? God, move that mountain. Work in that situation. So they they would not attempt to, to say to move a mountain. What, that, what the objection is doing is taking what the Lord says to the point of ridiculousness. Where's Thurman Hunter when I need him? He'll say amen right at that point. And because it's just an illustration. It's an illustration. It's, it's saying the small faith in the, in, the, in the correct object, God, will move tremendous loads, will, do, will accomplish great things. Now, this does cause me a lot of pause to think. The Lord says... Look at verse 20, um, end of 20. And nothing will be impossible for you. How many times have you said that's not possible? I, I can't do that. God can't do that. All those ministry things that I would like to see done for God's name and for the good of the people in the, in the church and in the community. You mean it's not as impossible as it seems? Yeah, that's kind of what, that's kind of what the Lord means. All those spiritual difficulties that I face in my walk with the Lord, the temptations, the the needed character improvements and holiness, my thought life seems to overtake me. These are, in fact, possible to address. Yes, they are. You trust in the Lord, indeed. Now, I'll mention verse 21. The presence of it is debated with older manuscripts lacking the verse. Uh, So you'll see just a, a footnote or a brackets or... An empty verse 21 or whatever. 
the majority text manuscript family does contain the verse, um, and so and Mark nine twenty nine has it pretty much, except it doesn't have the word fasting in there. So there's some debate about this. I've just left it off for the purposes of this exposition. But the point of it is, certainly in Mark 9, it's there. And the point is, a special communion with God, a real dependence on God in prayer. You, you know, you don't just, you don't just, like, I'll just make an application. You don't just walk up to the pulpit and start preaching. You prepare and you pray and ask God's help to do that. You, you know, don't just go up to somebody and, and uh, share the gospel with them. Pray for them. Pray for the circumstance, the, the situation, the words to say, the wisdom, and, and so on. This kind of demon, now you might not have thought about it, but yeah, there are different kinds of demons, is especially difficult and requires a lot of dependence on God to remove it. Man is no match for the demonic realm and must appeal to God for such removals. In fact, we're not much of a match for anything. You know, I mean, the spiritual things that we tend to try to accomplish. Dave Kerwicki has a good word for those. He says, my whole life, my whole ministry is trying to do impossible things. Trying to bring people to faith in Christ, that's impossible. (laughs) We don't do that. Anyway, God does that. The disciples had not the faith at the time to do anything of of difficulty. Faith in God is not the same as confidence in self. Perhaps their faith in God had waned and an attitude of self-sufficiency had crept in. Let's examine ourselves to see if we are disobedient to God because we are relying on our own strength and not trusting or not trusting fully in Him and, and if we're not accomplishing what He wants us to because we're not trusting in Him. Okay, So don't don't allow it to be said of you from now on that because of your unbelief. Let us not have that to be said of us because of our unbelief. Because of our belief, we live on for the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your kindness and for this good word that uh, was not focused on the, the man, um, but more so on the disciples and their lack of faith. And Lord, although they had some, they needed uh, a good deal more of training and practice in it. And I, I know that we would say the same about ourselves. Help us, Lord, we pray, to have the kind of faith that would please you. And we know that may mean more trials and difficulties to test and strengthen and grow our faith. But we want what is pleasing in your sight. And so we pray for your help in that. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, my dear friends, that's... Uh, what I I hope is edifying for you tonight and strengthening. And we will wrap up for this evening. Those of you that are online, thank you for watching tonight. Appreciate you doing that. Or whenever you watch uh, later on, trust the Word of God is edifying to you and you will walk away knowing that you've heard something from the book. Amen and good night.